Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company right here on ADH TV. Now, if you care about the direction of our country and you value common sense viewpoints, this streaming service is for you. Easy to watch, as you know, on your television, on your TV, you just go to the App Store or your Apple TV or go to the Google Play Store and just search ADH TV. Download the blue icon and away you go. Start streaming, which I know you're already doing. A big week here as we welcome Fred Paul, for his 9pm Monday to Thursday show. I know you're loving what he has to say. Thank you for your correspondence to that effect. Tomorrow night, we welcome the very first Friday show, Nick Cater's Battleground. Splendid mind, Nick Cater. You'll enjoy that, saying what other people won't say. It'll air Fridays at 8pm. So plenty of content for you as we try to make sense of the craziness we hear and read about each day. Speaking of crazies, I'll have a bit to say later on about the Greens. Paul Keating got it right when he labelled Greens leader Adam Bant a bounder and distorter of political truth. 100% correct. Bant, whose ego is way larger than his ability, seems determined to not only divide Australians but to now impoverish them as well. Mind you, he's won his seat in the federal parliament on liberal preferences. How smart's that? He acts like some kingmaker he, think he is, thinks he is. He declared yesterday at the National Press Club that his motley crew of Green MPs, and that includes this Lydia Thorpe, who walks around with a clenched fist raised in the air. Oh, give me a break. And they'll support Labor's climate change bill. This is the bill which will legislate, and I'll talk about it later in the program, the 43% cut to greenhouse gas emissions. But in declaring that support, the Greens leader said the agreement on the climate bill was only round one because he would keep pushing to halt new coal and gas projects and to include tougher rules in environment law to reduce carbon emissions. I'll speak about that in some detail and I won't be charitable to Adam Bant in just a moment. Now, let me get, be clear. A position that he is advocating will send families and businesses broke. Simple, no argument. It's anti-Australian. Only a person who hates our country would pursue such a ridiculous outcome. And that's why tonight I'll dwell on this to some extent. I will be speaking to Terry McCran. He and I both described this renewables pursuit as an economic suicide note. Well, in my mind, we're basically there. Not long now to go. I'll also speak with Daniel Wild from the IPA, our Thursday regular. We have a massive job shortage in this country, nearly half a million. I've said over and over again that there is a simple way to address the worker shortage in this country. We've got a ready-made army of reliable workers available to us. 400,000 pensioners over the age of 65 who could return to the nation's workforce if we let older Australians work without losing their benefits. I will raise this issue with the highly intelligent and articulate Daniel Wilde from the IPA. As I said, I won't miss on this Adam Bant a dangerous dogmatist. A wonderful story, by the way, from the Birmingham Commonwealth Games. And I look at Peter Dutton seeking to embrace nuclear energy. It's a full deck tonight. It may seem forlorn to talk about some of these things, but we must. They are too important to ignore. And remember, you can always email me your feedback on anything we raise here. Just email Alan Jones at adh.tv. You are watching ADH TV. Look, our nation is in need of very serious debate. And my warning is we shouldn't expect that to come from the National Parliament. Adam Bant was at the National Press Club yesterday, carrying on as if he spoke for millions of Australians. Bant's Greens didn't manage two million votes on May 21. The population of this country is about 26 million. Yes, he is entitled to a viewpoint, but he's not entitled to try to shove that viewpoint down the throats of millions of Australians who want nothing to do with his mad, irrational, irresponsible and nation-destroying policies. Yet, there he was yesterday, boasting that the Greens had improved, quote, a weak climate bill, quote, but the fight to stop Labor opening new coal and gas mines continues, unquote. He said yesterday at the National Press Club, can you believe this, 
that his party had a mandate. Quote, our mandate is from the planet and the laws of physics, unquote. This is meaningless but dangerous rhetoric. I could cite scientist after scientist to dispute all this climate change, global warming hysteria, but Dr. Charles Wax is the former president of the American Association of State Climatologists. He's on the record as saying, quote, first off, there isn't a consensus amongst scientists. Don't let anybody tell you there is, unquote. We'll come closer to home. William Kinnanmonth was the former head of the National Climate Centre within the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, who has said, quote, climate science is not settled. Four decades of observations highlight that computer models have exaggerated the influence of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide. He said, the Paris Agreement has been negotiated from faulty premises, unquote. Well, here's this bloke, Adam Bant. He's been given a platform at the National Press Club saying, quote, government agencies such as Export Finance Australia that in the past have funded coal and gas projects will for the first time be forced to take climate targets into account, which should see them curbed from supporting fossil fuels, unquote. Look, don't kid yourself. This mob are dangerous. Having then told an indulgent audience at the National Press Club that the Greens would insist on a new moratorium on coal and gas, the Greens will, quote, support coal and gas workers and communities, including the establishment of a transition authority, unquote. And that, quote, this has to be the parliament that provides job and wage security to coal and gas workers as we do our part to tackle the climate challenge. How do you do that? In other words, chuck them all out of work, but don't worry, we'll look after you somehow. You dumbbell, it cannot happen. Rhetorical but dangerous and undeliverable rubbish. But we had plenty of this yesterday, quote, we'll comb the entire budget for any public money, any subsidies, handouts or concessions going to fossil fuel corporations and we will amend the budget to remove them, unquote. The pompous and grandiose indulgence of this fellow Bant is manifest in the language, quote, this battle is to save our country, communities and indeed our whole civilization from the climate and environmental crisis, unquote. Well, while Bant was uttering this dangerous nonsense, we learnt that Australia's gift of 70,000 tonnes of coal has arrived in war-torn Ukraine and is being used to provide electricity in the energy-starved nation, and Poland is seeking more shipments of Australian coal. Adam Bant is sadly in need of a map of the world to understand what's going on in the world, and a little bit of reading might help instead of mouthing empty platitudes. Richard Lindzen is a distinguished American atmospheric physicist. The retired professor of meteorology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has said, if we follow the Bant idiocy quote, what we'll be leaving our grandchildren is not a planet damaged by industrial progress, but a record of unfathomable silliness, as well as a landscape degraded by rusting wind farms and decaying solar panels, unquote. Bjorn Lomborg has argued this removal of fossil fuels from the energy grid will cost the economy 16% of GDP. For us, that's $250 billion a year. Where the hell's that coming from? Well, China's coal-fired generation last year grew by 38 gigawatts. That's 19 Liddell power stations. Grew, I might add. That's not the total output. It just grew by 19 Liddell power stations. And they've got 127 China new coal-fired power plants in the pipeline. India's got 27, Indonesia 52, Japan 22, Vietnam 17, and they want our coal. One of the world's leading researchers on this subject is the Czech-Canadian Vaclav Smil, who has said, and I quote, the great hope for a quick and sweeping transition into renewable energy is wishful thinking, unquote. There's one further point here, amongst many others. The New South Wales Minerals Council 12 months ago did an annual member company expenditure survey. These are mining companies which are members of the Minerals Council. And it found that 27 participating mining companies in New South Wales directly spent, think about this, in the economy, in the communities where they operate, over $10 billion 
on the purchase of goods and services from almost 8,000 local businesses. Be gone. These mining companies spent $97 million in community contributions and payments to local government, $1.8 billion in taxes and royalties to the New South Wales government. And there are countries like Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam and India screaming out for our thermal and metallurgical coal. Bant says, stop it, won't go on. The key thrust of Bant's speech yesterday was to close all of this down. And he thinks he's got a mandate from the planet and the laws of physics. I'll say this, this bloke and his fellow travellers are un-Australian. Remember, this is the fellow Bant who earlier this year refused to stand in front of the Australian flag. His fellow Greens, Senator Thorpe, an Indigenous woman, similarly refused. Two people with an evident loathing for our country, but each on salaries over $200,000. This Greens outfit and its leadership is divisive, disrespectful, and under earlier definitions, would be treasonous, which is a crime of betraying one's country except that a previous Labor government changed the definition of treason. I began by saying that this nation is in desperate need of serious debate. Truth has become a casualty on all this climate change nonsense. We can continue this way if we like, but there's a steep cliff in front of us over which the nation's economic well-being will disappear. Well, at week's end, it's time for a dose of common sense. Sadly, not much of it has emanated from the National Parliament. The so-called climate change bill, which for years, Terry McCrown and I have called a national economic suicide note. And then, as I said yesterday, and have been saying for months, the unconscionable mess that we're in on monetary policy, that is the price of money, or you would call it interest rates, where the Reserve Bank, with their 1,342 full-time equivalent employees, had their eyes shut when the housing market took off astronomically. If you or I had failed so alarmingly in highly paid employment, after all, the Governor of the Reserve Bank is on over a million dollars, you'd lose your job. When Tony Abbott saw the books having become Prime Minister and correctly wanted to do something about repairing the budget, and remember he talked about a Medicare co-payment, where everyone who wanted to bill their health services to Medicare would, as in New Zealand, first have to pay something. Well, all hell broke loose, broken promises. And the lefties in the media and in his own party went after him. But Anthony Albanese, without any qualification during the election campaign, promised a $275 cut in power bills. No ifs, no buts. Where are the lefties in the media now? I can tell you this, the sun will come up in the West before you get a reduction in your power bill. So let's go to Terry McCran and welcome his dose of common sense. Terry, always lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. How much damage was done by the Governor of the Reserve Bank saying in December last year, it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024? Well, Alan, he's certainly uh, done a serious amount of damage uh, to the potential state of play of homeowners and particularly those that took him at his word and went out and borrowed $500,000 or a million dollars at what were ridiculously low interest rates, completely unsustainable interest rates. And even if they got the three-year break until 2024 before rates went up, they were always going to face massive increases in their repayments. But the, the 2024 promise was completely unsustainable. It showed absolutely zero understanding of exactly what those low interest rates and the massive money printing, Mm. not just in Australia, but around the world, Mm. had caused. This massive explosion in asset value. Yeah, now there are people watching you tonight who are facing mortgage stress. And to our viewers, if you read about that, that doesn't mean they're having a little bit of difficulty. It means they can't pay the mortgage. Terry, there are, I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, nine people on the board of the Reserve Bank, five are business representatives, four are economists. What homework were they doing last year? Well, they were basically ticking off on what the governor and the management of the Reserve Bank said was necessary. Uh, and uh, uh, you're right, Alan, they ha- the Reserve Bank has one job, and that job is to keep inflation between 2, what, between two and 3%. Now, some shift, some drifting from that is acceptable. Uh, you know, three and a half percent, maybe four percent, if for a short period of time. 
But what we have now is inflation approaching 10%. Yeah. The Reserve Bank says it's going to peak at 8%. Uh, that's a massive announcement of failure to do your basic yeah. job. Yeah. And, and you know, many, you know, as you say, there are over 1,300 people there. They, they don't have anything else to do. No, essentially. nothing else. But to try and understand then, what the, what's happening in the economy. But then, see, Terry, apart from you, that level. but apart from you, I mean, along with the bulk of the media and the so-called experts and the board of the Reserve Bank, they were all silent. I mean, you weren't, I wasn't. But now we've got a chorus of experts saying, oh, the Reserve Bank Governor owes Australians an apology. And those experts who couldn't see the train crash coming last year saying it's time for the Reserve Bank to press pause and wait to see what will happen following the fastest string of interest rate increases in the last 30 years. Terry, what do you think will happen? Well, I don't want to see the Reserve Bank push, push pause just yet because that inflation is not just going to go away of its own accord. Now, yes, it's mostly coming from overseas. It's mostly coming from, you know, the Ukrainian situation uh, and and um, China and the supply chain disruptions and COVID and all those things. But it's also the great risk, Alan, as you know, and your viewers know, is that it gets entrenched in the mm. domestic economy. Mm. And that's what we cannot possibly afford to let happen, because then we go back to the world of, of sustained high inflation, where people are chasing wage increases at rather than chasing productivity. Mm. And we end up with what we ended up at the end of the 1980s, interest rates in double digits yeah. uh, and massive disruption, massive dislocation of the economy, sustained unemployment, double digit unemployment, which lasts for years, doesn't just last for, for, for months or a year or two. Uh, and that's the absolute no-go that we don't want to end up with. Mm. So the Reserve Bank has to keep increasing rates now in order, including in accepting mm. the pain that that's going to impose yeah. because we cannot that, afford the right. alternative. So long as governments then do the same thing and pull their heads in and stop spending, well, I mean, for God's sake, they don't set much of well, an example. I just want to touch on a point that you have made, the comparison with the New Zealand Reserve Bank, because they stopped printing money in the coronavirus response last July. We kept dishing it out until February. So governments are a central, a central component of this inflationary crisis. Well, indeed, Alan. And I mean, this precious little hope of the, I mean, the Reserve Bank raising interest rates is one hand clapping and that one hand has to clap all the harder if governments fail to do their bit. That's governments, it. by that we mean mostly the government in Canberra, but also the state governments, because they've been just as profligate over the COVID yep. period as the federal government. Uh, and there's there's zero possibility of that happening in camp out of Canberra. Uh, you know, the, the Chalmers, the, the treasurer, is talking about taking some tough decisions in the budget in October. Uh, but we'll be, I'll believe it when I see it. That's and right. I think there's very little prospect of That's serious right. reform. Mm. What you'll see in what you'll see in October, I think, is tax increases, mm. which is not the same thing. Mm. as cutting spending. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the absolutely. Wayne Swan and, 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 and those Labor premiers used to talk, Prime Ministers used to talk about budget saves, mm. quote unquote. You and I would regard a budget save as the government not spending money, Correct. cutting the, the Correct. public service numbers. Correct. We just, we, we, just had a, we just had a budget. Increasing taxation is not a save. No, it's not a save. We just, we just had a budget in New South Wales with the most profligate spending by this fellow, Matt Keane, who really wouldn't know what he was talking about. But nonetheless, it's immensely damaging. I just want to go back to New Zealand again, because you make the point also. They stuck up the interest rates last October. We didn't start until May. In, in, indeed, exactly. And then only reluctantly in May, Alan. I mean, it wasn't something that uh, that Reserve Bank Governor Lowe embraced. He only, he really didn't want to touch interest rates any time through 2022, uh, at the very minimum. So it was a reluctant increase in May. Now, yes, he's been he's pressed the floor hard since then, and I and I personally applaud that because I think it's the Reserve Bank finally starting to do its job. 
but it's probably, as you indicate, it's probably going to cause more pain yeah, than if we've done it. this. But at least, at least we owe, at least, early enough. at least we owe the public the truth. Let's go to the chestnut that you and I have been talking mm -hmm. about for years and years and years. We warned it had come to pass. Here we've got it, Terry. The energy bill. 43% uh, emission reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050. OK, away you go, Mr McCran. Where will we finish up? <laughs> well, Alan, the, 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 the voters have voted for the Green Labor government or the Labor Green government, either way, and now they're going to get it good and hard. They are going to get it good and hard in terms of power prices going forward. They're going to get it good and hard in terms of eventually and probably not too far into the future, as you well appreciate, in brownouts and blackouts. That's it. Uh, because you, there's no way in the world you can sensibly replace mainstream baseload power, coal particularly, yep. uh, with, uh, with the Absolutely. fantasy of wind and solar and batteries. Mm. Uh, as you indicated, they, Labor uh, Prime Minister Albanese made an absolutely no qualification promise of a $275 cut in the power bill. Now he's trying to say that the that the, the government, the opposition, now opposition, hid these increases before the election. Uh, I smell a back backflip coming on that yeah, power absolutely. price promise. Look, we, we are going to run uh, out of time. We are going to run out of time, but I just want to ask you this other question about which we've been told nothing. Electricity generation, if you're worried about carbon dioxide, and I'm not, but if they're worried about carbon dioxide, the source of all plant life, but electricity generation contributes only 32% to greenhouse gas emissions. Transport's 18%. Agriculture's 14%. Terry, what's to happen to agriculture and transport? Well, it's going to be brutally devastating, Alan. You've put, on, you've put your finger on exactly the point, which I think is completely not understood or appreciated out there, even among the so-called commentary and the so-called experts, that it's not just reducing the generation of coal-fired power and cutting it to zero. It's about all those other industries That's which it. have got to halve or nearly halve yep. their emissions, which mm -hmm. which means, in very simple terms, they're going to go out of business. We're going to, they're, not going to any, they're going to halve their emissions by halving their production. That's and it. Their who's, going to, who's going to tell the farmer that the herd size is going to have to reduce to stop them breaking wind? I mean, the Prime Minister has been all around the world. Did he go to Amsterdam and have a yarn with the exactly. thousands of farmers who are driving their tractors across roads and highways in the Netherlands at the same time that Anthony Albanese was addressing 34 bureaucrats in suits in Paris, telling them fighting climate change must be at the heart of global cooperation. I mean, we're off the planet on this stuff, Terry. Well, exactly, Alan. And remember that 43% is is has got to be hit in just seven years. That's it. Eight years. That's 2030. it. 2030. That's it. So yep. that, you know, it's the, the disruption, the massive attack on the economy, the massive attack massive. on 26 million massive. Australians. And no one tells is, us about is, the cost. Is, is no, one, no one tells us about the cost. When Bill Short was asked in 2019 what his energy policy would cost, he said, it's a dumb question. It's a dumb question. They still won't tell us what it'll cost. I'll just make one point. Neither you or I are as a cynic, uh, Terry, but I was just thinking <laughs> when the foot and mouth disease crisis came. Uh, I wonder were they slow to respond in the hope that we might be able to decimate the, the, animal, <laughs> the animal industry in this country so that we would actually cut down carbon dioxide emissions. We must talk again, my friend. Keep at it. You do wonderful work. You can read Terry McCran in News Limited, the most incisive and instructive and informative columns that you'll get. But Terry's been talking about this for years and he and I have been talking about it for years. Well, the rubber's hit the road now. And someone's going to have to can wake just up. Make, Alan, can I just say something very quickly, which has been lost? Tomorrow is the first anniversary of the last lockdown in Victoria. It is a day that should live in infamy in the minds of every single Victorian. What Daniel Andrews put the state of Victoria through was utterly appalling and disgraceful. Unbelievable. No doubt. Good to talk to you, Terry. Thank you for your time. There he is, you, Terry McCran. Instructive stuff, but I'll tell you what, we're in a whole heap of trouble and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I mentioned earlier in the program that people like the Greens leader, Adam Bant, and the Victorian Indigenous Greens Senator, Lydia Thorpe, are without argument un-Australian. They need to take a trip to Birmingham and the Commonwealth Games to see how proud young Australians are to perform under the Australian flag 
and for their country, both of which are denounced and dishonoured by people like Banton Thorpe. Banton Thorpe wouldn't understand the selfless sacrifice of the young 25-year-old South Australian gymnast Clay Stevens. Clay was born with Poland syndrome, which means one pectoral muscle is missing. He was told he'd never be able to compete in a range of upper body focused sports like tennis, swimming or gymnastics. Here he is at the pinnacle of gymnastics representing Australia in Birmingham. But the 19 year old Adelaide born Jesse Moore, who's the all round Australian gymnastics champion, was injured. His withdrawal left the door open for the first reserve, Clay Stevens, to win a medal on the horizontal bars. 29-year-old Tyson Bull from Melbourne was the second reserve, but on the horizontal apparatus, he'd finished fifth at the Tokyo Olympics. Clay Stevens gave the place, vacated by Jesse Moore's injury to Tyson Bull, who claimed the silver medal. I suspect Bant and Thorpe wouldn't understand the pride and sacrifice at work in that gesture. Bant and Thorpe are on over 200,000 a year. Well, may we ask what they do to advance the international image of Australia. Yet you've got Emma McKeon in Birmingham, 28 years of age, swimming 16 races in six days for eight gold medals, tackling the program that no one else other than Michael Phelps could cope with. And she's doing it not for $200,000 of taxpayers' money, but out of pride in her country, her flag and her mates. I suspect an attitude unfamiliar to Bant and Thorpe. Earlier this morning, our time, Sydney's Rowan Browning was beaten in the final of the men's 100 metre sprint on the track. But if you can be magnificent in defeat, he was. Indeed, at the halfway mark against some world-class competition, young Browning was a big chance, but they ran over him at the end. I thought he was very impressive. Interestingly, we haven't won a medal in the 100 metre sprint since 1962 in Perth where it was won by the Kenyan, Serafino Anteo, and a Kenyan won it uh, last night as well in Birmingham. But in Perth, the great Australian sportsman and former Labor member in the New South Wales Parliament and former sports minister, Michael Cleary, won bronze in the 100 yards. One of the great Australian sportsmen, Michael Cleary, represented his country in three sports, athletics, rugby union and rugby league. Not bad, but too soon forgotten, of course. But we don't forget you, Michael. 60 years ago, bronze to Michael Cleary. He had to contest the result when he wasn't initially placed third. When the adjudication found that he was placed third, they went and found him in the breakfast room and <laughs> delivered his bronze medal to him the next day. There you are. Now, just on Nancy Pelosi and Taiwan, the flight carrying the US speaker has become the most tracked in flight radar history. Through the seven-hour flight from Kuala Lumpur to Taipei, 2.92 million people jumped on the flight radar website to follow the US Air Force jet. It's normally a four-hour flight, but the jet was forced to detour over Indonesia to avoid the South China Sea, where Beijing has been performing military drills. The enormous interest in the flight amid international tensions over the speaker's visit proved overwhelming for the site, which almost crashed. In geopolitical terms, China watchers say that Chinese President Xi is a bit nervous about all this. He's looking for a political coronation at the 20th Communist Party Congress later this year. So the last thing he needs to show to the Chinese people is any sign of weakness. Some in Beijing see the Pelosi visit as Washington becoming increasingly supportive of Taiwan independence. And President Xi is reportedly irritated by the fact that in the past year, senior leaders from America, Japan and the EU have all visited Taiwan. Nonetheless, I have to say, few believe Beijing wants an active military conflict against America and its allies over Taiwan. And just on this business about an Aboriginal voice in the parliament, don't take your eyes off this. Anthony Albanese has re revealed three clauses to be written into the constitution, one of which says the third, and I quote, the parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. I beg your pardon. So a future Australian parliament 
could give this indigenous parliament functions and powers. What functions? What powers? The more we know about this parliament for Aborigines, the more we know we should vote no. Look, you've heard me speak on this program on several occasions concerning the worker shortage in Australia and, I might add, the available solution. The shortage is diabolical. Job vacancies reached 480,000 in May, a jump of 14% since February, and more than double pre-pandemic levels. Common sense will tell you that a, a shortage of workers puts a handbrake on business, but it's even worse than that. And you would have seen all those pictures of people at airports, customers facing interminable delays when travelling, restaurants and cafes are closed when they would normally be open, they can't get staff. Building projects, you can't employ hundreds of workers on a building site if you can't find a surveyor. How can you sensibly talk about a post-pandemic recovery when employers can't find staff? And it is at every level of employment, closing international and domestic borders, flattened migration and labour mobility. WA had the tightest border controls, so it's no surprise that there are 40% more job vacancies in Western Australia than there are officially unemployed West Australians. And this is absurd. But what's even more absurd is there's no evidence that governments are doing anything about it. Workplace shortages are chronic. Either the employer tries to extend the working hours for existing employees or he shuts the door. The new Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has talked about labour shortages, but Treasurer, stop stating the bleeding obvious and tell us what you're going to do. The retail industry has the highest increase in vacancies of any industry. I've raised on this program many occasions, simple answer, let older workers work more without losing their pensions. Peter Dutton's made a start, but it's too complicated. He says change the rules about how much a pensioner could earn before having payments reduced. Can't we keep it simple? There are more than 400,000 people over the age of 65 who could return to the nation's workforce if we let older Australians work without losing benefits. And these people are reliable, they're experienced, they're knowledgeable. The Treasurer says this will be discussed at the National Employment Summit before October's budget. Treasurer, it's August. Thousands of businesses will go broke between now and October if nothing is done. Well, the IPA are always doing things that make a lot of sense. And they just released an analysis of this very issue, worker shortages. Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, and as you know by now, intelligent and articulate, joins me. Daniel, thank you for your time. Thank you for your common sense. You've said that Australia is in the middle of an unprecedented worker shortage and any Australian, particularly pensioners, who want to work shouldn't face barriers to getting a job. How simple is that? Well, Alan, love to, lovely to be with you as always. And as you identified, close to half a million uh, job vacancies across the country in all critical sectors of our economy. There's something like 25% of all businesses, around 600,000, are reporting they can't get the workers that they need. And this is causing significant issues, pushing up prices, causing supply chain issues. This is flowing through to inflation. And as you know, that then goes on to interest rates, which goes into every part of our economy. So this is a serious economy-wide issue. And as you rightly identify, Alan, the solution is right in front of us. We have got hundreds and thousands of pensioners who want to get back into work. They've got the experience and the skills that we need as a nation, but our current system penalises them by taking up to 50% of their income away from them when they own more than $240 a week. Now, I think, I think Peter Dutton has made a very important step in the right direction of mm. doubling the amount they can earn before they start mm. losing their pension. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah, but, but I agree with you that we should be doing a lot, lot more. Yeah, I mean, just keep it simple. Your research, though, this is the IPA research, takes this a step further when it highlights the economic cost. Now, you're saying... And you've got to say this slowly, the total worker shortage sees $32 billion in wages foregone each year. Now, if wages are foregone, that means income tax revenue is foregone. 
6.8 billion. And does your research not show, as I've argued, there are almost half a million job vacancies now, today, as we speak across Australia. And those vacancies, you say, have increased by 270% since the start of coronavirus in 2020. These are savage figures. They are savage figures, Alan. That's a good way of putting it. And the part that I want to focus on is the income tax revenue that governments will receive. And this is critical because what it means is that policies like the policy that Peter Dutton has put forward, they will pay for themselves. Yes, it will cost money to the federal government uh, in terms of the payment to pensioners, but they will get that back because those pensioners will go into work, they'll be earning an income, and when they earn their income, they then pay more income tax back to the federal government. So it pays for itself very, very quickly. Now, that money that goes to the government can then be invested in critical social infrastructure like schools, like roads, like hospitals, and this benefits all of us as a community. So it's a win-win policy. There's no regrets. There's no downside. I think Peter Dutton's made a good start. And yeah, the I other agree. point I just want to make yeah, here, Alan, yeah. just to put this in context, is only about 3%, 3% of pensioners currently work. That's it. That figure is far too low. Many more want to go to yes. work, but they don't want to be yes. penalised for doing and, so. And why should they be? Look, uh, we, we just need to rehearse and repeat some of these figures. You made one before. These are staggering statistics. More than 25% of businesses, and people watching us here tonight see this every day of their lives. They think, oh, I'll go to dinner at X restaurant. Oh, not open tonight, not open tomorrow. And they see businesses closed. 25%, as you said, what? 600,000 businesses have reported experiencing labour shortages. Yeah, that's right, Alan. And, and you make an important point that we see this in our lived experience day to day, whether it's at yeah. the supermarket, we see that yeah. the shelves aren't full. At the, Daniel, Daniel, at the hospital. Daniel, at the hospital, you're nurses, right. at aged care. I mean, you're saying, your research, 70,000 workers short in the healthcare sector. That's right. 70,000 workers short in the healthcare sector. And that's why whether in Victoria or Sydney or WA, we are facing some significant pressure on the health system where people can't get seen by emergency staff quick enough. So we need to get more of these people back in to work, including getting the pensioners back into work. It's across every sector of the economy, Alan. It's mining, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, Everywhere around the economy is experiencing food. this significant yeah. labour shortage. That's 100% right. And as I say, the key issue is this. It flows through to the rest of the economy. This is one of the key issues why prices are rising so rapidly is when you have a shortage, prices go up yeah. and everyone feels the pain. Yes. Well, if I could make a little plug for this embryonic station, which is magnificent, what the pictures you see here, and you think to yourself, well, how on earth could an outfit, which has only been going for six or seven months, garner the kind of audience we've got, and it's an international audience, and produce for you the kind of pictures we produce. But I've got to tell you, it's a nightmare getting technical services who can work in this industry. And you've made the point in your research that professional, scientific, and technical services, that there are 43,000 worker shortages. And I mean, all of this is exacerbated by the pension rules. Say to the elderly people, to people who are pensioners, okay, listen, keep your pension. And as you say, go and work and you'll pay for the pension. Yeah, look, that's exactly right, Alan. And quite often governments take the lazy approach to dealing with these issues, which is by simply increasing our migration program, but that doesn't fix it in the long term. What we need to do is make sure that Australians have the first go at getting the jobs that we need. And once those jobs are filled, then look to bring in the international yes. workers. But as you have identified and I'm speaking about, we've got the older Australians that don't want to go into work because they're penalised. No. You've also got younger Australians at university yes. quite often who are receiving sometimes generous entitlements from government. They don't want to work more hours because then they start losing their benefits. Yes. So in addition to the older I mean, workers, we've got to get the younger workers out there so they can experience the dignity of work, get the skills that they need to build up their career. And now is a great time. It's a red hot economy. It's a great time to get into the labour market. And we need to be removing all of this red tape, all yes. of these bureaucratic hurdles, the, the tax office, all of those in Canberra that don't have a clue what it takes to run a business no. or to, you know, to what it means to actually try and get things happening. Get rid of all of this red tape. Get more Australians into work and let's get going. But just unbelievable, just for the benefit of our viewers, you see, I mean, if you're wanting to increase productivity or 
income to government or increase the tax revenue, which, as Daniel said, can then go into roads and schools and all the rest of it. I'll just say this slowly. A pensioner with no other income or assets will lose half of every dollar the pensioner earns above a piddling $4.90 a fortnight. That's $245 a week. Daniel, why should any employment scheme, and this is one of them, in other words, pensioners, you come and work, why should we then have a punitive component to their working? Well, we shouldn't. It's quite simple. We shouldn't. And it's actually worse than what you say, Alan, because yes, they start losing uh, 50 cents on the dollar through lower pension payments when they earn over 240 bucks a week, but then they also start paying income tax on top of that. So their effective tax rate, the actual amount of money they're losing on every dollar they earn can be 60 or 70 percent. Now, that is way higher than what we see in New Zealand, for example, which is really the gold standard in this area. So, Again, you come back to the important point that these are punitive measures being taken against our most experienced workers that have so much to offer at a time of critical labour shortages right around Australia. When we're just trying to get more Australians into work, we want to grow the economy, we want to increase business investment, we want to deliver revenue for government, hello? I mean, honestly, it's at the end of the day, I'm saying establish a pensioners in work classification. You'd have to specify what kind of pensioner you are or what we're talking about. And they'd be people with significant work experience and initially, I'd argue, over the age of 65. Let them earn their income, let them pay tax, let them keep their pension. And that means there will be more spending in the economy, a bigger economy, more tax revenue, as Daniel said, for schools and roads and hospitals. Daniel Wilde, you are an agent of common sense. You have called this a no regrets policy. You have the final say. No regrets. Why no regrets? Well, it's no regrets, Alan, because we get more pensioners into work who want to work. Uh, We grow the economy, we get more investment. And then also what that means is we get more revenue back into the government. So the policy pays for itself. There is no downside other than to the bureaucrats that are stuck in the middle. We've got to get rid of them, get rid of the red tape. And this is going to be a big boost for pensioners and a big boost for our economy. And we'll keep talking about it. And can I just say to some of those 250,000 public servants in Canberra, who get pimples on their backside doing nothing, do what you mostly can't do, provide a simple solution to what is an urgent need. Good to talk to you, Daniel. Thank you for your time. Daniel Wilde is the Deputy Executive Director of the IPA. Always interesting to talk to him and always incisive observations. See you next week, Daniel. Well, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has put his marker in the ground. The coalition in opposition will conduct a review into, quote, advanced and next-generation nuclear technologies. Along with this, he's announced that he won't support Labor's climate change bill. All this will alienate the left, but Dutton's job is to give Liberal supporters something to support. Again, you've got the Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, waving his arms around, misrepresenting the facts about nuclear power, calling it the most expensive energy there is, far too expensive to build new plants, all part of Bowen & Co becoming ideological prisoners to this alarmist talk about climate change, net zero emissions and renewables. But it's no use saying that Bowen needs to be taught a few lessons. You can't teach people who don't want to learn. Interestingly, when Bill Short was leader, he was asked during the 29 election what his climate change proposals would cost. He dismissed the question, saying it was dumb. But now that Labor's in government, and Peter Dutton makes his statement about reviewing advanced and next-generation nuclear technologies, Bowen starts screaming, look at the cost of it. Nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. That's the big, bright idea. Let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of, unquote. More dishonesty. But when you don't have an argument to defend your stupidity, you may as well invent one. Any number of studies show that nuclear energy isn't the most expensive form of power. Not to his credit, the Prime Minister obviously on the back foot over the Dutton proposal, sought a cheap laugh in the parliament by comparing the coalition MP, Ted O'Brien, to a cartoon character. The prime minister who wanted greater decorum and courtesy in the new parliament, very much on the back foot on the nuclear issue said, oh, putting the member for Fairfax in charge of a review on nuclear power bears an uncanny resemblance to Mr. Burns putting Homer Simpson in charge of nuclear power safety in Springfield, unquote. Not a good start for the Prime Minister. People don't respond to that talk. 
But such a smear would be news to 46 countries. There they are, some of them around the world who have 440 operable nuclear power reactors. There are 54 reactors under construction, 96 planned and 325 proposed. There's more of them. And if Mr Bowen and the Prime Minister would like to do a bit of homework, they'd be able to check the countries, which we've put up there on the screen for you, who've embraced nuclear energy. There they are on the screens. That is the list. Now, the embattled French President Emmanuel Macron would willingly point out that his nation relies on nuclear plants for 71.7% of its energy. Sweden has 40.3%, the UK 17.7%, and Ukraine with 53% of nuclear energy, despite Russia destroying its largest plant. Now, you and I, the taxpayer, have just funded trips by the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister to almost every corner of the planet. They declared they'd been speaking with international leaders who allegedly welcomed the emissions reduction target of 43% by 2030. When the Prime Minister was talking to these international leaders, did they talk about reactivating their closed coal mines to respond to energy shortages? Did our Prime Minister ask any of these leaders how much nuclear energy they relied on to keep their industry operating and their citizens from not having to operate in the dark? And by what criteria does our Federal Energy Minister say that nuclear power is the most expensive source, all said to prop up the obsession with renewable energy? There is an energy crisis brought about by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a big energy rethink is underway. How do you reduce and energy reliance on Moscow. In other parts of the world, uranium has been an energy workforce, fueling nuclear reactors in, as you saw, 46 countries, generating baseload electricity with barely any carbon dioxide emissions. In the recent French presidential election, Emmanuel Macron outlined plans to build as many as 14 new reactors to bolster his country's energy needs. Albo had dinner with Macron. Did he ask him about this? Well, enter into this debate the Victorian branch secretary of the CFMEU Mining and Energy Division, Jeff Dyke, who said earlier this year nuclear power would provide secure, reliable, low-cost power. He wants to turn the La Trobe Valley into a nuclear region to help stem the 2,600 job losses from the closure of the Hazelwood and Yalorn coal-fired generators. But he also warned there'd be fewer jobs if the region became a renewable hub. Jeff Dyke, the Victorian branch secretary of the CFMEU Mining and Energy Division, has said that the building of small modular nuclear reactors would create 810 direct jobs and 1,600 construction jobs over a decade. And the construction jobs, he said, would add an estimated $240 million per year to the region in income. Here is a union leader telling us how the embracing of nuclear power creates jobs when the best that Bant can do is to admit the jobs in the mining industry would be destroyed and that somehow he would, quote, provide job and wage security to coal and gas workers. It's dreamland stuff. Peter Dutton's on the right tram. And while Chris Bowen and Anthony Albanese might rule out nuclear technology, the rest of the world hasn't. And nor have powerful unions and not just the CFMEU Mining and Energy Union, but the Australian Workers' Union. Peter Dutton should take clean, coal-fired power and nuclear energy to the next election. And I'll tell you how people will vote. They want energy security ahead of climate ideology. One final point to Mr Bant and Mr Bowen and Mr Albanese. Finland's Green Party has just adopted a fully pro-nuclear stance. Look, before we go to Fred Paul, we spoke about this on the UK report last night with David Maddox, this desire from Conservative Party members in the UK to have Boris Johnson's name placed on the leadership ballot paper. As of 2019, the UK Conservative Party had about 180,000 members. A petition created by party members wanting Boris Johnson to stay on as Prime Minister has now got over 12,000 signatures. Lord Crutus, who is worth more than a billion pounds and is a major donor to the Conservative Party, has now urged the Conservative Party board to suspend the leadership contest 
and allow Boris Johnson to stay in Downing Street. This comes as concerns over cyber security and the potential hacking of the ballot process have come to light. But here is Lord Crutus's offer. He says party members should be allowed to vote in a referendum on Boris's leadership that would cancel the campaign if members voted as wanting him to remain in the top job. And if members voted for him to leave office, Lord Crutus has offered to pay for cyber protection for a new leadership contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Being a major donor, I'm sure his words got some weight, but the likelihood I think is slim. As we all know, the political establishment are stubborn. It is the same with those who sit in the party room. We saw that here with the Liberal Party and Malcolm Turnbull, a bloke who visited Graham Richardson in the 90s seeking a Labor Senate position but somehow worked his way up to knock off the very good local member, Peter King, then convinced the Liberal Party room he'd be a better leader than Tony Abbott. He failed as opposition leader. Then the party room reinstalled him again as leader. You just shake your head as how stupid people can be. So as I mentioned with David Maddox last night in my UK report, the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, looks set to be the next Prime Minister of the UK. I must say at the start, I didn't think she was too flash and I thought Penny Mordaunt would beat her into the last two, but she's defied the odds and what she says is beginning to resonate. She definitely has gears. And as Alistair Heath in the London Telegraph has said, Truss is driving all the right people mad. Heath has dubbed it Truss derangement syndrome. And as he writes, just like the allergic response once set off by Brexit, Truss derangement syndrome is an absurdly irrational overreaction triggered among the very same category of people who wanted us to stay in the EU. They recoil in disgust, obsess about her supposedly gauche mannerisms, reject everything she says out of hand and catastrophize even her most modest proposals, unquote. He goes on, how dare she call for more grammar schools or for an improved remit for the Bank of England? How stupid. Doesn't she know that clever people have already looked into and dismissed this? The electorate will hate such ideas, won't it? He ends by saying, I've known trust since 2008 and I'm cautiously optimistic. Comparisons with the Iron Lady can be inappropriate, but there's one enlightening historical parallel. Many dismissed Margaret Thatcher in the early 1970s as Education Secretary. Few would have predicted how much she would grow into the role and Truss's supporters hope she too will eventually turn into a formidable leader. Unquote. It's enough of an endorsement for me, I have to say. I think Liz Truss will be the next Prime Minister of the UK. And the interesting thing will be what role will Boris Johnson play in her government? Well, that's it for me tonight. It's good to be back here on ADH TV. Stick around for another hour of Common Sense with Fred Paul. He'll be joined by Professor David Flint. And make sure you watch Nick Cater's Battleground tomorrow night at 8pm right here on ADH TV. That's it from me for this week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for your company. Good night.